Welcome to the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show, created and hosted by Scott Knudsen, to explore the crossroads of horses and business. Now here's your host, Scott Knudsen. Hello, and welcome to the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. I'm your host, Scott Knudsen. Whether you're watching our podcast on one of our many platforms or listening to us on the radio out in California on NBC, the KCAA affiliate, we really appreciate you. And thank you for supporting the show and, and, and subscribing to our YouTube channel, Cowboy Entrepreneur. Today, we got a special guest and uh, Stefan Roseman is here. And Stefan is the founder, the chairman, and the CEO of the 1970 Group. He's an avid polo player and a great horseman. And, and Stefan and I were connected by a dear friend of ours who's already been on the show and had just such great stories, um, uh, Jackie Dalton. And she, Jackie's the president of uh, Sparrow Executive Jets, and I just can't say enough good things about her. But Stefan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here with you. Oh, man, we're going to have fun. I, I can't wait for our audience to hear some of your stories and adventures. And, and uh, uh, so, so did, talking about polo, did you grow up wanting to play polo? No, you know, it's funny, Scott, I actually came to polo later in life. Um, so I rode as a kid um, and uh, had a multi-decade hiatus and came back to it in my uh, early 30s. And uh, so something discovered later in life. And of course, given the complexity around uh, playing and the organization required to play, uh, it's something that's best experienced as a grown-up, unless it's being done for you anyway. So uh, you, you needed to be a little further along in life to make that a reality. You got you. I understand. I understand. So what did you ride earlier in life? Did you ride Western or English? Or? I rode Western. Yeah, a lot of, you know, you? Yeah, a lot of the trail riding. So I'm from Montreal originally. I grew up in Canada. And I know uh, horses are not the first thing anybody thinks about when they think about Canada. It's actually pretty active. Uh, pretty active equestrian culture in Canada. Of course, the Western provinces have uh, very active rodeo and rodeo scene. Uh, but even in the yeah, Eastern provinces, yeah. uh, there's a fair bit of horse activity. That's so cool, man. So, okay. So growing up in Canada, so what was your main sport? Hockey, skiing. <laughs> Hockey. There you go. I should have guessed, man. Yeah. You don't, you don't have a lot of choices. I, I raced, uh, raced as a skier until I left and uh, played hockey for the duration. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. So, so riding Western, what, what all did you do? So I guess, was it a short window to get to ride just during the warm months or it was, was it yeah, indoor? Indoors. And there were folks who were active in some of the indoor arena type activities and equestrian activities. And it was something that I always, uh, I always enjoyed doing, but as a practical matter, once you have a full, uh, full slate, full dance card with other sports, it's hard to squeeze yeah. in, as you know. So it, it was yeah. something, yeah. Uh, it, it was something I enjoyed and, Ultimately, even when I came back to it later in life, I wished I had, like a lot of us, I wished I had uh, spent more time doing it when, when I was young. But uh, it, it was good. It was good entree for, for polo, which, again, came to later. Yeah, that's so awesome, man. That's so awesome. So um, so let's talk about schooling. Did you go to school in Canada before you came over? So now you live in New York City, correct? I, or in New York? I do. I live uh, exactly. I live just north of the city, but I do. I live in New York. I uh, used to live in the city. In fact, when I started playing polo, I lived in the city. And uh, counterintuitively, people do not think of New York and or the Northeast as being particularly equestrian heavy. It's actually quite the contrary. There's a uh, fairly substantial equestrian scene here. Now, away from polo, it tends to tilt towards 
uh, three-day eventing and, uh, and, and of course, uh, all of the show horse type activities. And when you look through the mm-hmm. Hudson Valley, all the way up through upstate New York, as well as New England, very active and thriving equestrian scene more broadly, and even polo. So uh, polo in and around New York, whether it's um, in the Hudson Valley, uh, in Connecticut, Greenwich Polo Club, up through Massachusetts and Boston, there is an active and thriving polo scene here. And again, it's not something that people think of when they think of New York, because I think most people, when they think of New York, default to thinking of New York City and they think of Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. I understand. They think of Austin when they hear Texas now. You know, I don't know. (laughs) You get out of there, there's a lot of horses, you know. It's also beautiful in in the northern part of New York. It's it's pretty pretty beautiful country. And it is. And and the emphasis on the word country. When you go to upstate New York, it is the country, as it were. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So did you go to school and finish school in Canada or did you come to New York and finish school in New York? Yeah. So um, so ultimately went to school in the States for college and grad school and uh, uh, made my way back to the East Coast in the uh, in the late 90s. And I've been back on the East Coast ever since. So I moved to the United States. I lived out west and actually a little bit of equestrian activity. I moved to Arizona. So when people think of uh, people think of horses, they do think of Arizona. They don't think of Montreal. They, they, do. they don't think of New York, but they do think of Arizona. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe second to Texas, but they do think of Arizona. So uh, yeah. uh, a little bit of equestrian activity there. The um, the Arabian horse scene, of course, in the late 80s and early 90s was massive there. So, uh, massive. yeah, big, big collect- universe of collectors, uh, people who are active horsemen uh, from all over the world. So um, some of your viewers may not be aware, but uh, during that period, uh, Scottsdale, uh, Arizona in general, and Scottsdale specifically, were very much the nexus of uh, what was the equestrian discipline back there and, and the equestrian pursuit, which was Arabian horses, certainly, and breeding stock for them. So when you were in Arizona, did you work a little bit with the uh, Arabians or was it still the work? No, so I did. I, so my riding in Arizona was mostly uh, what was a little bit English, mostly Arabians. We were surrounded by friends who were active in the Arabian equestrian scene. But it wasn't as active, again, as I would have liked to be. And at the time, we didn't have uh, much in the way of polo in Arizona. They do today. So there's a club. Um, there's a club in Scottsdale. Um, I believe there's a club in Tucson. But in, in Arizona, so it's, again, counterintuitive. While it's a pretty active equestrian scene, it's not quite as developed as Texas or even uh, Wyoming, for example. So people are surprised to learn that there's a fair bit of polo in Wyoming. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and, and of course, Texas, Houston has great clubs. Uh, Dallas has great clubs. So it is, uh, Arizona was never as big from a polo standpoint. Yeah. You know, there's even a traveling com- club that comes through Fredericksburg and there's a field here. And, uh, but I, I love it, man. I, I think it's such a cool sport. And I've dealt with a lot of polo players, you know, in, in different horse scenarios. And, and uh, I love it. I, I love to watch it. So how did you prepare? Like, do you remember your first event or your first polo horse to ride? Because it's different. You know, it's so different. I do. So I can tell you exactly. So my my introduction into polo is uh, was a little bit uh, odd. I mean, I think everybody has their story and it makes it unique. But <laughs> yeah. um I was on vacation in the Dominican Republic and, um, and uh, very much was a beach vacation. And there's a, a well-known club. It's actually probably the best known club in the Caribbean. It's called Casa de Campo and Casa de Campo is in the uh, Dominican Republic. And uh, I only have so much tolerance or patience for beach type vacations and, and sitting still. Yeah, and um, yeah. they actually have a, a, a tremendous polo field there. 
and they offered lessons. So on a lark, I went to take lessons at Casa de Campo while I was there on vacation and I was smitten. So I took a lesson. Um, I then uh, continued to take lessons for the duration uh, and came back to the U.S., came back to New York. And I tried to figure out how in the tri-state area, in the New York area, uh, how to get involved in polo. And uh, of course, as I mentioned earlier in, in our chat, uh, it actually turns out there's a fair bit of polo here. So it wasn't as hard as I may have imagined while I'm still there. Uh, you know, the logistics are a little complicated because again, back to the earlier point, it's not in New York City, so you do have to travel a little bit. And when I started mm -hmm. playing, when I came back to New York, I played up at Yale, uh, the Yale Polo Club. So Yale is one of the schools uh, in the United States that has a long and storied uh, commitment to polo and has had a commitment to polo. Uh, it is, uh, it still exists. In fact, my uh, my 13 year old played at Yale last week and uh, cool. uh, they've since moved barns. Yeah. So it was actually the old Yale polo facility was fascinating. It was the actual original armory, the original Yale armory. Wow. So it was this historical building. Uh, it had all, it had a uh, hundred years of dust to prove it. Uh, and uh, it was a tremendous facility. And, and that was where I played for a bunch of years. And then slowly as my polo experience uh, developed and, and I got uh, mileage uh, under me and, and, and I got my legs. Uh, I started playing at other clubs and started traveling to play and started uh, mm -hmm. uh, putting together a string and started buying horses. And uh, it was really thanks to Yale, notwithstanding the fact that my first lesson was at Casa de Campo, Yale was really the beginning of my polo journey. And it was a great home, tremendous uh, club from a membership standpoint. At the end of the day, you know, polo is a team sport and it is a great community of polo players and it's a very communal community and what i mean by that is unlike some other equine disciplines at a team level folks are very competitive at the individual level everybody's very collaborative and happy to help you whether it's training buying horses travel arranging for horses when you uh, when you go somewhere to play you know as you might imagine unlike those who do eventing for example where you would bring your horse because it's your horse to the event. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not particularly convenient to travel, especially long distances or overseas with a string of, of, of horses, a string of ponies. So you're typically working with other clubs and local polo players to avail yourself of their stock of horses so that you can mm -hmm. play in that environment. So if I came to Texas, for example, I wouldn't be traveling with horses. I would be using loaner horses and very collaborative in that way, very collegial atmosphere, which I've always uh, really appreciated. And I've seen it even with my, my son, my 13-year-old who plays. The, he was embraced from the time he's been playing for a few years. And from the time he was uh, just a brand new player, he was embraced and treated like uh, one of the tribe, as it were, and, and already an active player, which was great to see. It was really cool as a dad and as a parent. Man, I love that. I love that so much, you know, because some disciplines in the horse sports are very, very, you know, it's tough to get in. And this sounds like it's, it's, there's people accepting you. So how does somebody get into polo? Maybe he's never played polo. Yeah. So, you know, I've had people ask, uh, so people have expressed interest. So I, I will often, mm -hmm. uh, so we have a, a, a regular, uh, a club that has regular game, games close to us. So it's the Greenwich Polo Club, uh, which is about 15 minutes from where I live. It's a beautiful facility that was built by Peter Brandt and who's active in, in, in multi, uh, multiple equestrian disciplines, including racing and polo. And it is a phenomenal, it's probably the most spectacular polo facility, uh, certainly in the United States, and there are spectacular facilities in South America and Argentina, of course, and in Europe, but it is beautiful. 
and I'll often host events there, corporate type events. And people will ask that exact question, Scott. They'll ask, hey, if I wanted to take a lesson or, hey, how did you start? Can I do this? And we'll get that question. And invariably, what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll facilitate some sort of introduction to somebody that can help them in their journey and, and get introduced. So a lot of folks come to it. Uh, it is not a, it is not an inexpensive sport to play. So, uh, you know, that's why a lot of folks end up starting kind of later in life, right. When they are sure. uh, in a position to do it and I'll facilitate the introduction and then, you know, they're often running on their own, their own polo journey. How great is that, man? They introduce somebody to a sport like that, you know, with horses and polo It's a traditional sport, you know, not traditional, but with lots of tradition. You know, and I, I love that. So, so when you go somewhere else to ride or to play polo, how do you match your riding ability and your team's ability to the horse? Well, so when you go somewhere else to ride, typically what happens is the, the, the host club or host barn will be providing horses for you. If you're not traveling with your horses, of course, will be providing horses for you. And the way they make it fair or equitable is you rotate horses. So you'll see this a lot ah, with college okay. polo programs. So uh, if you have a match, what happens is effectively everybody's taking turns on all the horses. So if you have horses that are hot, horses that are a little more recalcitrant and aren't as, uh, uh, you know, maybe a little less mouthy and a little less sensitive to inputs, you got to ride those too. So you don't just get to ride the good horses. You got to ride all, you know, all the horses. Right, right. You, you Isn't that stick. something, you know, in rodeo and some other sports, you know, you ride, but you... There, you already know that horse because you've ridden him before and you already had that agreement. But traveling like that, you never know what you're going to get on. That's kind of fun. You never know. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. What I tell people, it's a little bit like playing golf. You can practice all you want at your home course, your home club. <laughs> but the reality is as soon as you go play another course, it's another course, right? With its own turf, yeah. its own weather, its own winds, its own everything, right? I'm not a big golfer. What a great way to look at to, it. To, you know, I know enough about golf to – to know that that's true. No matter how good you get at your home course, you still have to go play somewhere else eventually. Man, what a great way to look at that. That's awesome. So, so when, what was it like? Do you remember your first horse you purchased for Polo? Do you remember that event? And I, I do. Um, and so it was a horse uh, that I bought from a trainer. So somebody, so a lot of the horses here, so horses come from, uh, effectively come, come to you in two different ways. So there are horses that are uh, come from Argentinian breeding stock that are either coming up from Argentina that uh, pros are importing here. It's part of how they earn a living in addition to playing polo. And they will uh, import horses to sell. They'll sell off their horses at the end of a season where they might play them and they don't meet their needs. So again, unlike some other disciplines, you have... Uh, We've all heard the expression in the equestrian community, horses for courses. Well, it's very yeah. true in the polo community. So as you develop as a player, one of the things that happens is, of course, you're, the types of horses you're looking for will evolve and change over time. And as mm. a consequence, uh, your what you're looking for will change. And so you will develop a relationship or relationships with folks who are either making horses, uh, making ponies here, or bring ponies up from uh, from Argentina, from BA and the like. And in that process, you get to know, and, and the seller gets to know you, you get to know the seller and the types of horses they typically have, and they get to know you. And so when you ask about my first horse, um, I probably wasn't as well informed as I may have, uh, as I should have been, and, and as I would become later. Uh, I ended up lucking into the fact that the horse ultimately proved to be great, candidly, 
she was probably a little too much for me uh, early on. And that was the first. Uh, and then as you start to buy more horses, you refine your process, you refine your expectations, you refine mm-hmm. what you're looking for. You even refine and become more adept at communicating what it is you need or want or what you think you need or want. And right. um, ultimately, as we were talking about with traveling for polo, you also adapt to the horse because it's not just about getting horses that are better for you. It's also you become more accustomed to whatever that horse provides. Some horses are mouthier and right. handier. Um, some horses take inputs uh, you know, from, from, from leg movement better. They run the gamut. I love that, man. I love that. And I love the comparison to golf too. That's so smart. Um, that's what it's like. You know, that's perfect. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back on the show and we're going to talk about the breed of horse to make a great polo horse and, and some other stories with polo and just so many more things to cover. So we'll be right back on the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. Scott will be right back with more. Hi, I'm Scott Knutson, host of the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show, heard on KCAA, Fridays, 3 p.m. Pacific. I'd like to talk to you about something I'm very passionate about. Those that know me know I love my coffee. In the morning, afternoon, and even late in the evening, I enjoy a good cup of coffee almost any time of the day. Now, my team at the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show has been working for several months on creating and introducing our own brand of coffee. We wanted to make sure that we got it just right. We don't want to put our name on anything unless we're 100% certain that it's the best product available, and we've finally done it. We have created a wonderful line of coffees, 13 fantastic flavors offered in whole bean, ground, and K-cups, any way you like to brew your coffee. Now, each of our coffees carries our brand, the very same brand that we put on our horses, our trailers, and our chaps. So you know that this is a quality product. And we only use 100% Arabica beans, the very best beans available. Just listen to some of these wonderful blends and flavors. Jamaican Me Crazy, Honduran San Marcos, Chocolate Cherry Amaretto, Breakfast Blend, and my very favorite, Haley's Blend. A coffee so good, we named it after my daughter. You can order these coffees today by going online to javacowboy.com. That's javacowboy.com. And if you order today, you can get an extra 10% off your final purchase just by entering the promo code COWBOY on checkout. Remember, that's promo code COWBOY for an extra 10% off. Just go to javacowboy.com to order your coffee today. Hello, I'm Scott Knutson, host of the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. I want to tell you about a product I've tried and I love and I feel the Cowboy Entrepreneur audience will as well. It's Rebellious Infusions. Rebellious Infusions, there are little packets of flavor. And you know, it gets hot in South Texas, over 100 degrees every day. And I like my water, but it's water. So I use these infusions, put them in my water. It makes it cold. It's great flavor, zero sugar, zero calories. It's pure energy infusions. Rebellious Infusions. Go to drinkrebellious.com or on all social media platforms. Drink Rebellious. Hi, and welcome back to the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. I'm your host, Scott Knutson, here with Stefan Roseman. We're talking polo and, and the game of polo and the sport of polo. And uh, so let's talk about some of the breeds of horses. So what is the main breed of horse for, for polo? Yeah, so when people think about polo, they typically think about um, Argentinian horses. So Criollo and some of the mm-hmm. others. Uh, but Argentinian polo ponies uh, are 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 what typically comes to mind. It's worth noting, and I love mentioning this, especially for the horse community, that in the States, and this is really, uh, seems to be more of a U.S. phenomenon, horses are often rescued from the track. So as you know, 
uh, in horse racing, horses um, typically hit their sell-by date, at least from a performance standpoint, fairly young age. But in the world of polo, horses play into their teens and sometimes even older. So while a horse might be retired from the track, they might have a decade and a half or longer to be productive uh, member of a polo string. And so what you see in the States are folks actually uh, rescuing racehorses and making uh, polo ponies out of them. And the, you know, the, the, the making process, of course, the training process uh, can take a little bit of time. So it takes some investment and uh, requires some patience, but you end up with some hardy horses. They tend to be a little less delicate, a little, uh, uh, a little hardier and, and, and more stout. Uh, than some of the Argentinian horses uh, in terms of relative competitiveness on the field, size, et cetera, which matters. So in polo, as, as you know, Scott, uh, polo is mm -hmm. a physical sport. It's a full contact sport. And it's not only full yeah. contact at the player level, it's full contact for both athletes, the horse and the polo player. And so right, right. a horse that's not only uh, is, is a bigger horse and, and, and stands taller at the shoulder, but is also heavier, uh, more robust, more stout, has an advantage uh, in, in a ride-off, for example, mm -hmm. or, or, or a right. full contact scenario. Now, they might have a disadvantage in terms of speed or handiness and some of the other trade-offs, like, like a lot of things in life and like a lot of disciplines, there are trade-offs. You are typically picking one feature at the expense of another feature, one benefit at the expense of another benefit. So mm -hmm. the idea is to have uh, horses that really cover the waterfront in terms of what your needs are. I love that, man. I love their, they, they repurpose a horse, so to speak, yeah. you know, it's probably a crass way to say it, but it gives them another opportunity to do something else that, um, you know, a thoroughbred racehorse loves competition. They love that environment and it gives them that opportunity to do that as well. It, absolutely. Scott, you see some of these thoroughbreds that are made as ponies. What happens is a, a polo pony and, and, and if, for people who haven't seen polo or experienced it, they don't all realize this, but what ends up happening is, uh, the, the, the horses themselves become attuned to the game and not unlike a dog chasing a ball uh, or a stick or whatever other input you might, you know, whatever toy you might play with your dog with horses get used to not only your body position on, on the horse, on the back of the horse, and they know when you're about to swing, they then hear so cool. and intuit the, 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 the hit, the ball being hit and the sound associated with it. And they look for the ball. Uh, so some of your horses that are really sensitive to the game are often running towards what we call the line of the ball. The moment you've made contact, you're not even giving the horse input yet. And the horse already knows that it's actually pursuing that ball, which is pretty cool. I mean, so not everybody, even in the equestrian world, realizes that horses become that attuned to, uh, to the game. Yeah. That's absolutely fascinating. I think it's, it's such a team sport, not only with the, the, the human element, but with the horse and the rider. And that's what I love about riding horses is that sport, the, the teamwork. But, Absolutely. man, for them to see the sideline, it's so cool. Absolutely. Yeah. So how long does it take to train a horse to get to, like, where you're comfortable saying, I can go out and compete on this horse and not let my team down? Yeah. So there's a couple components to that. There is both um, making the horse uh, so that it is it, it is polo stable and, and really getting the horse in a position where it's uh, – it, it knows what to expect. The other uh, part of it is also getting the horses used to being in very close contact and around other horses, right? And I don't need to tell yeah. you, but some of the mares can be a little persnickety about uh, this. We tend yeah. to play on a lot a of mares. And so yeah. uh, the horses uh, need to be used to and get used to being in close proximity because they're often tied up together, you know, shoulder to shoulder, wither to wither, and, and, and uh, both 
at the trailer as well as on the field. And the horses, if a horse isn't used to that, they can become uh, not as stable for polo, right? Because you don't want a horse kicking out for all the obvious reasons at another sure. horse, at a player, et cetera. And it does happen. Uh, but as you know, the horses will uh, will bite, they'll kick. And because they have to be in such close proximity throughout the game, you got to get them used to that. So it's both the playing aspect, but also the socialization. Not unlike socializing a dog, a puppy, when you bring a puppy home, right? The puppy has to be used to being around kids and grown-ups and other dogs and maybe a cat in the house or whatever it is you might have. Uh, same idea with the horses, but it can take a few years before the horse is really ready to play and certainly ready to play high goal polo or higher goal. Polo. Right. I, I love the process of taking this time, though, until the horse is ready. As yeah, opposed to just putting them out there. You know, that's so much better. It, it doesn't work to put them out there. I mean, the other thing they have to get yeah. used to is having a mallet swung around their head, right? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, and so, as you know, uh, horses can be distracted, if not downright spooked or scared, from something getting close to their sure. face, something larger, fast-moving, getting close to their face. So there's a lot of um, desensitization around getting a horse ready for, for polo in that regard as well. And the, uh, you know, and, and, and horses do get accidentally, just like we do. And if you're playing soccer uh, or you're playing baseball, you might accidentally get hit by the ball, right? It happens. Uh, sure. And same with soccer. Horses accidentally get hit by a mallet or a ball. Uh, it, it isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily hurt them per se. I mean, it, certainly, of course, it can, uh, but it can scare them. And uh, so you got to get sure. the horse sensitized or desensitized and conditioned to be used to those types of inputs that they're not expecting, especially if they're a rescue from the track. They're certainly not used to having things flying around their head if they're resting from the track. Uh, very different right, discipline, absolutely. right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the sound of the ball when the mallet hits the ball at full speed, that's got to be such a loud noise, you know, when you're you're over it, basically, yep, or you're absolutely. near it, you know, so that noise travels up. And I'm sure, you know, what's that like training a horse to do that? Well, for better or for worse, I've never been involved in the actual training process. I've only been the beneficiary of great training. <laughs> Um, that's so awesome. I've certainly, <laughs> that's awesome. I, 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 I've been a beneficiary of, of, of folks who've made some incredible polo ponies. Um, and I get to watch it from the sidelines. Uh, I don't have, uh, I don't know that I would put forth my expertise as being sufficient, uh, to, to, to adequately make a polo pony that I'd want to play on. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So, so when you're traveling, and, and to different states, maybe even other countries, do you take your equipment like your saddle and your boots and whatnot that you need to ride? Uh, so definitely we'll take boots, mallets, uh, protective gear. So uh, helmet, your mm -hmm. uh, knee pads and whatnot. Um, saddles, it depends. Uh, so it really depends on uh, give a very strong preference. A lot of times there are saddles that are uh, fit for the horse that you're using. So you know, I typically will tilt towards just using the, the host's gear uh, when I'm there. And, you know, preference aside is a little bit back to the golf analogy. You just get used to riding different saddles. Uh, you know, so, for example, at our barn, we're all suede top saddles. But, you know, certainly uh, when we go ride elsewhere, you may very well end up with a, uh, a, a well-worn, well-loved uh, leather saddle that's as smooth as glass, right? It's like, like riding a mirror, right? Which is very different mm -hmm. than, than riding a suede Good top saddle. Good way to saddle. put it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it because that's what it feels like. Yeah, that, that is what it, that is definitely what it feels like. And you know, with Man. given the relatively diminutive stature of a uh, of a polo style saddle, right, which is an English style saddle, uh, mm -hmm. the uh, without the comfort of 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 the really secure seat, uh, you know, it, it adds a little bit to the adventure of going and traveling to a uh, 
to a new club. Back to the golf analogy, right? It's you, you yeah, it's great, man. You got to use that core, stay centered. <laughs> I love it. I love it. it, it so when you travel, forces you to focus on your seat. That's for sure. It, I would think it would have to. You know, I've ridden some of those kind of saddles, and man, it's slick. And and you really got to use the core and sit in that center because, uh man. Indeed. Well, so do you see the, like the host, the host uh, borns um, when when y'all come in? Do you see them take extra pride in their horses? And do you see that like when you go to different places and they're like, I know when someone comes out to my ranch, like an intern or somebody that's never ridden, that horse is always I'm trying to make them look great, feel great, and be perfect for that person for a good experience. Do you see that? You do. I mean, in general, of course, I think uh, most horsemen, uh, you know, most uh, equestrians really take pride in in, in their, their mm -hmm. horses, their equipment, their their barn, their setup. And what I would say is, is that it, there's a multiplier effect that certainly increases the degrees of difficulty, right? Uh, because typically, again, unlike, say, having that, that one horse or those two horses that are available for a little bit of riding together, uh, or even three or four horses, if we're going out as a group trail ride, or maybe we're going to hit the arena and do some barrel riding in polo, you're providing a lot of horses, right? So that multiplier right. effect, just like anything, uh, when you have to repeat the, the maintenance, the care, the, the, the attention, it just, it's, it's, it's harder, right? The degrees of difficulty go up with just the sheer quantity of gear of, of tack of, of, of horses, uh, to be kept right. in good health, keep, keep them shooed, keep them, uh, looking good, feeling good, making sure that they're, um, that any prior injuries or difficulties, stumbles, uh, that they aren't um, not in playing shape. So, uh, so yes, are they are, are folks proud? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Is it are the degrees of difficulty in making it picture picture perfect every day harder? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Difficulty go up. Yeah, it, it, you know, and I don't think people. I think some do, but just like you say, that the multiplier when you have that many horses, just a feed program alone, or like we were talking earlier, the vets and the the different care programs. There's there's a there's a program for each horse. That, that's right. And for those uh, for those of your viewers who aren't as familiar with polo, uh, they may not may not be aware that best practices is you're playing a fresh horse each chucker. So a chucker is a period in polo, and you're playing a fresh horse each chucker, uh, which means you have as a as a as a team patron or you're running a team. Certainly for you yourself to mount yourself, you have six primary horses plus alternates. And if you're mounting the whole team, you have, right? So uh, again, there's typically six, uh, six chuckers in a match. So you're typically, um, you're typically providing uh, six horses for each player plus alternates. Uh, the, the multiplier effect goes up pretty dramatically. You have four players on a side for outdoor. Indoor is a little, uh, a little easier. You have three players on a side, but um, it's a lot of horses and a lot of gear uh, to keep, uh, keep track of, take care of. And so it really is. It ups the degrees of difficulty in a pretty meaningful way. Wow. So, so, so amazing. Just the, the coordination to get that many horses, that many riders, that many stops together for an event is something, you know, it's something that um, when you, when you're in the sport, when you're in, in horse industry, you just know how hard it is to saddle one and get one ready, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, the secret is if you're lucky, you're, uh, uh, a lot of it is being, uh, you're being helped out. You have some amazing grooms and some other folks around the barn that are, uh, that are helping you get ready Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> prior. Um, and, uh, if you get your kids involved, your kids also end up, uh, serving as your grooms. Absolutely. My daughter grew up in the barn. Yeah. 
<laughs> by the way, but I, I'm now finding myself in the uh, odd position where I'm increasingly grooming for my son. I don't know how that worked. <laughs> <laughs> he flipped the table. Yeah. Oh, no. He, he, he did. I, you know, it, it, it makes one wonder. I'm both paying for it and I'm grooming for you. How does that, how does that work out? Smart young man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. That's exactly. Oh my right. goodness. So, so where's your favorite place? Not to put you on the spot um, to play. Like, is it another country? Is it a particular course or is it Yale? I mean, what, what do you like to go? Yeah. So as I've, as I've gone through my polo, um, my polo journey, uh, you know, it's funny when you start to play and, and, and many people certainly in the Northeast, really learn to play in arenas. So arena can be indoor or outdoor. So, uh, so for example, University of Virginia has a tremendous um, outdoor arena. It's, it, it's, it's massive. It's probably one of the largest outdoor arenas in the United States, uh, but it is an uncovered arena. Many or most arenas, uh, certainly in the Northeast, are actually indoor arenas. And when you're starting to play, and I started in both. I started at Yale, which has an indoor arena, and then you really aspire to play more outdoors because the perception is it's faster. And it is, the field is much larger. So for, uh, for your viewers who aren't aware, a polo field is the largest field in organized sport. So it is 300 yards long by 100 yards wide. So said differently, you could put a foot, hit a football field in its width. Um, it is massive. And when you're playing indoors, you aspire to play outdoors because the perception is it's faster. You allow your horse, you can open up your horse, horses more, right? And you can run more. Right. And while that's true, what you gain in speed, you lose in, in quickness. And what I mean by that is in arena, the game is fast, is, is quicker, not faster, but quicker because you're playing off the boards. And going back to our earlier part of our conversation, I grew up in Canada playing hockey. I played hockey all the way through college. So think about hockey for a moment. What are you doing? You're playing in an arena. Right. Of course, it's a rink. But, you know, if you think of it in the context of, of polo, it's effectively an arena and you're playing off the boards and plays are made off the boards, right? With a puck uh, uh, careening off of a board and you're using that as part of your calculus. And as I developed in my polo career, I found myself increasingly for weather considerations and also just for preference. Because of course in polo, if it starts to rain heavily and the fields become saturated for safety reasons, you don't play. And so you lose days if you have a particularly rainy, we have a relatively limited season in the Northeast. Uh, typically it's, uh, the outdoor season runs just before Memorial Day to just after Labor Day. So you're talking about four, four and a half months. It's a relatively short season. And if you have a particularly rainy spring or fall, uh, you lose the shoulder seasons. And of course, mm -hmm. whatever summer brings, summer brings. Indoor polo and arena polo, you're not restricted that way. Now, an outdoor arena, you would be, of course, because you're subject to the same issues around rain. But an indoor polo arena is, uh, is A, weather is not weather dependent, but B, I came to appreciate how much quicker it is. Again, not faster, because you can't open up the horses the same way, but the sport moves quicker. And it's three on a side, and there's a lot of passing, passing off the boards, plays made on the boards. There's more tactics around the boards than there are outdoor. So, you know, when you ask about preference, what I would say is, as I, as I sit here today, my answer today would be different than it was a decade ago. And one, I love playing in the Northeast. I love the, uh, there's nothing better than a, a beautiful afternoon match. And we, have, of course, all have our biases. Texas, Texas is beautiful. Sunsets are beautiful in Texas, too. But, you know, certainly a beautiful afternoon match in the summer in August outdoors uh, is amazing. But if I had to pick one, I would ultimately pick indoor arenas in general to play indoor polo. Because the other part, the other nuance that your uh, viewers may not be aware of is that indoor polo 
is almost exclusively amateur. Outdoor polo is pro-am. It can be amateur only, but it is most often when people are seeing polo at a polo event, what they're typically witnessing is a pro-am event. So it's one of the only sports, if not the only sport that I'm aware of, where you actually have the, the sport itself is organized around pro-am. So you have pros playing with amateurs and on a four person team, the makeup of the team, what percentage of the team is pro versus amateur makes up how, how good that team is, right? And what level of polo they're playing. Because as you might imagine, if you're playing with four pros that are highly rated polo players, that's very fast, very high level polo. Right, right. And if you're playing with a mix of, let's say, two pros, two amateurs, it's going to be somewhere in between. If you're playing with one pro on each team, three amateurs, it's even, uh, you know, it, 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 it's a little less competitive, a little slower, just because of the difference in skill between, uh, between the pros and the amateurs. So today, to answer your question, to come around, uh, come back around to your question, my preference today is playing indoors anywhere because I enjoy meeting the people and playing with other amateurs. And there's a lovely pro community. And, I, and it's not that I don't enjoy meeting and playing with pros, but it's really about playing yeah. with you and playing with the other folks that you meet that are like us, that are amateurs yeah. as polo players. It's not how we make a living. And you meet them as equestrians and, and, and fellow horsemen and fellow polo that. players. Man, I love that. That's a great answer, man. I, I love that about the pro-ams too. I didn't know that. So great information. Well, we'll be right back. I want to, I want to learn more about the 1970 group and, and how you manage doing so many different things. And I know the audience is going to learn from that for sure. And uh, we'll be right back on the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. Thank you for listening to the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. Scott will be right back with more. For more information on Scott Knudsen, the Cowboy Entrepreneur, visit us online at cowboyentrepreneur.com. Hi, I'm Scott Knudsen, host of the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. Heard on KCAA Fridays, 3 p.m. Pacific. I'd like to talk to you about something I'm very passionate about. Those that know me know I love my coffee. In the morning, afternoon, and even late in the evening, I enjoy a good cup of coffee almost any time of the day. Now, my team at the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show has been working for several months on creating and introducing our own brand of coffee. We wanted to make sure that we got it just right. We don't want to put our name on anything unless we're 100% certain that it's the best product available, and we've finally done it. We have created a wonderful line of coffees, 13 fantastic flavors offered in whole bean, ground, and K-cups, any way you like to brew your coffee. Now, each of our coffees carries our brand, the very same brand that we put on our horses, our trailers, and our chaps. So you know that this is a quality product. And we only use 100% Arabica beans, the very best beans available. Just listen to some of these wonderful blends and flavors. Jamaican Me Crazy, Honduran San Marcos, Chocolate Cherry Amaretto, Breakfast Blend, and my very favorite, Haley's Blend. A coffee so good, we named it after my daughter. You can order these coffees today by going online to javacowboy.com. That's javacowboy.com. And if you order today, you can get an extra 10% off your final purchase just by entering the promo code COWBOY on checkout. Remember, that's promo code COWBOY for an extra 10% off. Just go to javacowboy.com to order your coffee today. Hello, I'm Scott Knutson, host of the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. I want to tell you about a product I've tried and I love, and I feel the Cowboy Entrepreneur audience will as well. It's Rebellious Infusions. Rebellious Infusions, there are little packets of flavor. And you know, it gets hot in South Texas, over 100 degrees every day. And I like my water, but it's water. 
So I use these infusions, put them in my water. It makes it cold. It's great flavor, zero sugar, zero calories. It's pure energy infusions, rebellious infusions. Go to drinkrebellious.com or on all social media platforms, Drink Rebellious. Hi, and welcome back to the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. I'm your host, Scott Knudsen, here with Stefan Roseman, and we were talking polo. So um, so what do you see for the future of polo? Do you see it just expanding and, and bringing in new riders into the sport? Yeah, Scott, I certainly hope so. My biggest concern for the for the sport is the loss of, uh, of clubs and farms, places to play, venues. And, of course, mm. with, uh, with population growth, and this is, of course, a global phenomenon, certainly not unique to the United States, but with population growth, and cities expanding, metro areas expanding, you're losing a lot of the, 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 the land, the ideal land, the clubs, the farms that exist, and the clubs that exist that serve those metro uh, communities, right? Whether you're in Florida, uh, South Carolina, and certainly up here in the Northeast. And so my concern is the loss of clubs. You know, uh, last year I became aware that Hopi Sound, for example, which is a well-known club in Florida, was sold to developers. I, I, in fact, I don't believe last winter, last winter was the first winter where they didn't open as a polo club. It was sold to developers. So this amazing farm in Florida and Hopi Sound, which was a storied club has been around for many, many decades is now going to be a housing development. And so when I think about, when you ask about the future of polo, that's my, uh, that's my biggest concern because uh, it, it, candidly, it increases the challenges, uh, the challenge that those of us who play and or for those of us who have family or kids that play, the convenience and ease with which we can get them to polo, right? And the more mm -hmm. you have to travel, the more difficult it is. It starts to look a lot more like skiing, right? And um, even right. golf has protected golf courses. I, I live in a suburb of New York City and around us we have an amazing abundance of golf courses because that, that's been protected as something valuable and sacrosanct to the community. And of course, there's a wider, broader audience that plays and access, uh, accesses golf than there is polo. These large expanses of land that make up farms, polo clubs, and the like are really ideal, unfortunately, developable land. And as a consequence, mm -hmm. are often being converted. So that's my biggest concern and increasingly right. likely becoming, to the extent it exists, more and more of an arena or indoor type sport with a loss of outdoor Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you see subdivisions or, or development areas building, a, leaving it like that and building the houses around it? You know, so the, as in golf courses, you know, they have the houses. Maybe they do that for polo. Yeah, there's certainly a few examples of that in Florida um, that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. and there's at least one or two right. examples in Southern California. I'm not aware of a ton of those, uh, candidly. Uh, yeah. and, and if you think about it, the reality, the polo community globally is a fairly small, look, the equestrian community globally is a fairly small subset of, of mm -hmm. the total global population. And when you talk about polo, it's an even smaller subset of the equestrian community, right? So again, yeah. unlike golf, which people can play casually, people can play very seriously, uh, many people access golf, you can go, you know, one year playing uh, three days a week and then not play for two years, no harm, no foul. Uh, polo, because you're kind of all in or all out, doesn't really work that way. So it's, I think, harder to find an audience for people to buy homes around a specific Makes polo sense. community. I'd like to think it would change. I don't see anything changing that trajectory, but unfortunately, uh, I think it makes it challenging. 
Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, for sure. I hate that, but because polo is such a great sport and everything you said, people are going to want to, you know, try it out for sure. And, and, and the land, you know, the housing part for sure is, is a problem, but maybe there's a way to figure it out, you know, and it just hadn't been done yet that protects them like the golf courses you're saying. Yeah, that's right. And if you look at in Southern California, the example is, uh, you know, one of the polo clubs is also used for alternative events, right? Because it's an amazing, a large expanse of land, an amazing venue for concerts, right? So you'll actually have concerts and other events at that polo club. And they've figured out a way to to, to effectively multipurpose the acreage. And I think ultimately that's what has to be done if you're going to save those clubs and by the way again back to the analogy of skiing it's not unlike skiing because if you think about skiing's big challenge skiing of course requires mountains but moreover requires snow and uh while the mountains are consistent from year to year the snow is not and so to be a viable (laughs) business ski resorts have had to develop other lines of revenue and so they've developed downhill mountain biking parks they've developed um um, uh, zip lining parks they've developed uh, tree courses, adventure courses, and of course they've developed golf courses around the ski area so that they can really become a four-season right. destination and generate revenue another way. And I think when you see the example, the few examples that have successfully uh, landed on a model, that's what you see is you see folks who have figured out a way to develop new revenue lines from existing acreage so you don't have to lose it to the developer. Because ultimately, I think, unfortunately, the land is going to trade to the highest and best use, right? Just like anything in mm-hmm. business, ultimately, um, the bias is towards ultimate is to highest and best use in business. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that example, though. I, I love that for sure. Um, so so let's talk about the 1970 group. Um, uh, if you don't mind, just I know you're you're the chairman, the yeah. CEO, you founded the group. Would you just talk a little bit about yeah, that? Absolutely. So 1970 Group is a specialty risk financing company that serves large U.S. corporations and uh, the large U.S. corporations have specific needs. It's very um, idiosyncratic type financing around their insurance programs. And that's what we Mm -hmm. do. And we serve large uh, U.S. corporates that range in size from several hundred million in revenue up to billions of dollars of revenue. Those are our clients. And uh, we're active in that market. And it was a company that I founded after recognizing a need in the market for the solution. So there was a gap in the market and a requirement to, to solve this problem. Uh, folks had tried prior to solve it over the last number of decades, and nobody had successfully solved this problem until we came along. Wow. Congratulations for figuring that out. That's <laughs> so what, what's that like? So, so you're busy with this, this, this incredible company and you're playing polo. And I know you sit on some boards. How do you manage that? Cause there's so many people with time management and they're always asked the question, how do you manage something? What's some advice? You yeah. Give? So look, when, uh, when you're younger, um, certainly when I was younger, uh, you know, the, the bias was to say yes to everything because certainly, yes. Uh, it seemed like it, it certainly seemed like there was uh, there was more upside to saying yes. And what I've come to realize as uh, you know, more experience and a little more gray hair, as it were, uh, is that the the upside is to saying no to more things. So what ends up happening is from a schedule standpoint, you become much more judicious about what you say yes to and you start to learn to say no to a lot more. And while certain things might seem like a great idea, and this is true for both business and, and personal life, right? Uh, because you have, you have conflicts. So I used golf as an example before. 
Uh, I like golf. I don't, uh, not as passionate about golf as some other sports, but I recognize I have a limited amount of free time. So I focus in the areas that matter to me, which are polo skiing, uh, being out on the water where uh, very much, uh, I'm very much a, a boating person. And when it comes to business, the same is true. It really comes down to the highest and best use, not unlike the land conversation we were having a few minutes ago, and saying yes to the things that are the highest and best use for you as it relates to what you're pursuing as an operator, as a business person, uh, as an entrepreneur. Man, that's a great answer, you know, but as an entrepreneur, it's scary to say no to something, you know, because you don't know um, if, if that should be a yes or you, you need to make that deal to make another deal. And that's hard to prune that tree a certain way. It is, you know, so um, and, and, and what you're talking about is the risk of saying no. And absolutely and it's worth noting, you know, as humans, the human condition is such it's hard for us to measure risk in the way that risk actually affects us. And so. You know, to your point, the, the concern, the bias is towards the risk of saying no. What if I should have said yes? And what I would invite everybody to do is to think about risk both ways. What's the risk of saying yes and having it distract me from something? Because uh, right. no matter who you are, no matter what business you're in, you still only have 24 hours in a day. You still only have seven days in a week. And as a consequence, time constraints are the reality and are the constant for all of us. And it do, it literally does not matter what industry you're in, software, uh, uh, healthcare, right. hospitality, right, equestrian businesses, right. We have we all okay. we all suffer the same calendar, and so it really does right. become a discipline that's really critical to 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 hone and discipline. It's really incredible, uh, incredibly important to become good at. Otherwise, you you run the risk of of overcommitting, and uh, that has its own impact. <sighs> I'm telling you what, you know, I did that too. I, I still do that to some degree is just overcommit because you want to do as much as you can. You want to volunteer where you can and, and uh, you just, uh, you can't do everything the right way. And that's a tough position. It is. It is indeed. Yeah. So, so what's next for you in polo? Where, where are you playing again? And, and when do you get back out? Well, so I am, uh, I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I, I find myself uh, spending a lot of time on the sidelines these days watching my, my uh, almost 14-year-old <laughs> playing, and uh, his travel schedule for polo is picking up pretty substantially. And in fact, he is, uh, this coming Friday, he's playing against the, uh, the uh, Cornell team, and uh, he's increasingly playing against college kids and uh, really impressed with his progress. So my polo is increasingly becoming his polo. So when you have... <laughs> <laughs> awesome. so I, I, I continue to play. And the cool thing about the, the sport is I can also play with him. So back to this pro-am concept, it's also a family. Uh, and this is where it's again, similar to golf. I use the golf analogy. The great thing about golf right. is, is you go out and play with your kids, your grandkids, your grandparents, your, your friends, whatever the case may be. Similarly mm -hmm. in polo, one of the one of the things that I take great joy from is the ability to play with my son is, you know, when he first started, he wasn't playing quote unquote adult level, more advanced polo. Well, he's at a point now where he's playing with college teams and he's playing with grownups and uh, at, at not even 14 yet. And so uh, I'll certainly be following him around the country uh, a fair bit as he, uh, uh, as, as he gets out to play and, uh, and then playing with him. So our season, our indoor season, in the Northeast comes to a close in April uh, as we sit here in January. So we have another three months or so late April, early May. And then you have about a month, month and a half gap and it pretty much moves to the outdoor season. 
And so, wow. you know, I certainly look forward to playing the rest of the indoor season with him here and then uh, supporting him while he travels to play and then playing with him outdoors in the summer. How great is that? I love the generational part of the sport. You know, that's so, so great. Yeah, there's so a lot. Great. When you look so, at polo um, uh, pros, so folks who make a living in the polo community as well as the amateurs, back to this pro-am concept, you see a lot of of, of, of dynastic uh, players where it's, 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 you might have grandparent, uh, parent, child playing. Wow. And it's, it's, to the best of my knowledge, it's the only sport that's like that. You know, you certainly don't see it in football or, or soccer necessarily, or uh, even in, in tennis, mm-hmm. right? It's, it, this is a sport where right. you actually have multi-generations playing sometimes at the same time. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? So, so have you played, I guess y'all played on the same team together. Have you ever played against each other? We have. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am. Uh, I am better off playing with him than against him um, because uh, this is the tough part about being a parent. So your parental instincts take over, and as I mentioned earlier, oh, yeah. it's a it's a fairly full contact sport. People don't realize that, but it's closer to hockey than what most people realize, both indoor and outdoor. And uh, uh, it it's hard to. Uh, to go full contact on your own kids. <laughs> yeah, I struggle. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's a lot easier to do it when it's just somebody else that you're playing against. So I, yeah. I like it better when we're on the same team than when we're on opposing teams. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it, it's it's kind of cool, though, man. You grew up playing hockey, which was a contact you know sport. Now you're playing polo, which is also a contact sport. And playing indoor is similar to playing in the rink indoor, you know, and I love how that's transitioned for you. Indeed, yeah, the, the parallels are uh, are significant, and uh, it, it's something that uh, you know. Certainly, when I was playing hockey, I couldn't imagine I'd ever be playing indoor polo. Uh, but now that yeah. I play indoor polo, I think about my hockey a lot. That's so cool, man. That's so cool. Well, Stefan, I really appreciate you being on the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. I've enjoyed this so much, and love learning more about polo and about you and. And uh, I appreciate bringing up the next generation, next horse lovers. Indeed. Thank you so much, Scott. Appreciate it. Great to chat. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. And what? thank you for watching the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show and listening to us on NBC KCAA out in California. Thank you for watching. Thank you to all the great sponsors of the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. If you or your business is interested in being a sponsor of the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show, please call our office at 830-992-1786 or visit our website, cowboyentrepreneur.com.